The 2020 Giro d'Italia is here at last, and Flow Bikes is the place to be. Watch all 21 stages of the Corsa Rosa live and on demand in the U.S. and Canada. In addition to the live broadcast, viewers can access exclusive on-site coverage, expert analysis, live watch parties with World Tour pros, and a host of other behind-the-scenes content. But that's not all. The Tour of Flanders is just around the corner, and Flow Bikes will have live and on-demand coverage of the race in the U.S. and Canada. Don't miss out on the craziest fall of racing ever. And when you purchase a Flow Bikes subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash fizzo. That's F-L-O bikes.com forward slash P-Y-S-O. He's been knocking on the door for what seems like forever. And finally, at the 2020 Tour de France, Richie Port was able to step onto the podium. Today, we caught up with the typically media-shy star to catch up on what has been a remarkable career, starting on the roads in Tasmania and reaching its pinnacle on the podium of the Tour de France. This week on Put Your Socks On. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and, as per usual, I'm joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how's it going, mate? Doing well, doing well. Um, no, it's a little bit of a quick turnaround for us, but when the great Richie Port finally says that he has time to come on the podcast, we got we to gotta jump. So we're not going to talk so much about the Giro d'Italia, because by the time this comes out, it may be a little late. So we just wanted to reserve the whole time to speak to one of my favorite riders in the Peloton and really dig down into how his career has worked over this last decade. So really looking forward to, to talking to him. Other than that, here in South Carolina, not much else going on. Mate, me either. And this week it is fantastic. I had the fortune of uh, racing with Richie once, I believe in uh, my very short career back in 2006. And I remember back then he uh, at the time had just started focusing on the road and nobody knew where he'd come from and he was just exceptionally strong. And then next thing you know, he's on the best teams in the biggest races and it feels fantastic to see him finally make the podium of the Tour de France this year. And then also finally decide that he's going to come on our podcast. <laughs> The 2020 Giro d'Italia is here at last, and Flow Bikes is the place to be. Watch all 21 stages live and on demand in the US and Canada. In addition to the live broadcast, viewers can access exclusive on-site coverage, expert analysis, live watch parties with World Tour pros, and a host of other behind-the-scenes content. And that's not all. The Tour of Flanders is just around the corner, and Flow Bikes will have live and on-demand coverage of the race in the U.S. and Canada. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash fizzo. That's F-L-O bikes.com forward slash P-Y-S-O. Uh, so I think without further ado, let's, uh, let's go to the main piece of, this, of the episode. 
While perhaps diminutive in stature, Richie Port has been a major player in the world of professional cycling for the last decade. He has rode for some of the biggest teams and best riders of his generation. He's won some of the biggest races, and at the tender age of 35, recently finished on the podium of the 2020 Tour de France. I'll admit, it took some time to finally get him on, but we're super excited to have Richie Port from Trek Segrafredo joining us today. Welcome to Fizzo, Richie. How you going? Good, thanks. And yeah, thanks for having me. The whole media thing's not really my, my favorite thing, but yeah, I think after all these years... I do owe you something, at least, I think, to jump on. It's nice to, to finally catch up with you again. And and our fans, man, the, our listeners, that's what I really wanted to get you on because, you know, you, you kind of fly below the radar because you're not the biggest social media guy. You're, you're never really looking for attention, but you let your legs uh, speak volume. So I just wanted to fill a lot of people in on your backstory, you as a person, because I can't tell you how many people that I run into, especially since your amazing result during the tour, like, who is Richie Port? Like, where did he come from? So that was the motivation. And I appreciate now that your season is over sitting down with us uh, because, yeah, people want to know. I want to know. So, yeah, let's let's start off from, you know, coming from Tasmania and the world of swimming and triathlon. What made you start even thinking about cycling? To be honest, I think with triathlon, I was at the, the level that I was going to be. I, I was too young to do Ironman or any of that sort of stuff. So I was doing Olympic distance and I could swim, bike, but my run was just, it wasn't up there to, to make a living out of it. And yeah, I think that then I sort of just more focused on cycling. You know, I was I was lucky to be honest that uh, I went to a local race and there was a guy there who who had a, a team out of Tasmania that was racing on mainland Australia and uh, you know he he said I think you have a bit of potential and next thing I was I did a race called Tour of Canberra finished absolutely stone dead last every stage that they had but uh, you know, it was the start of a you know a, a, something that I really enjoyed and it's it's kicked on to be my career and. You know, I think everyone's got a story, but yeah, mine was a bit of a late, a late coming to cycling. But uh, you know, looking back, it all worked out, and you know, it's been a, a great journey. I remember, um, like hearing first hearing your name circling around, like this triathlete um, who's just incredibly strong, and you know, you kind of, in my mind at least, you sort of re- very rapidly burst onto the scene, and I, I think. As we were discussing before the podcast, like our, our paths might have crossed once or twice in Australia. Um, and then I feel like all of a sudden it was like, you know, seeing you at a race like the Goulburn to, to Sydney and then all of a sudden you're wearing the pink jersey in the Giro. What was the first result that put you on the map of, of professional cycling teams? When did, when did, you know, teams like CSC start reaching out? Probably... To be honest, the first one would have been 2007. I moved to Italy. And you know how the Italians are, they're all, you know, well, I guess it's a powder weight sport, but I was a little bit hefty, probably seven kilograms more than what I am now. So yeah, I actually won my first race in Italy. I think they looked at me and thought this little fat Australian guy is not going to outclimb us. And in the end, I did just rode away from all these you know, Italian climbers and, and won my first race. And from there, you know, it, it kind of just went from a small Italian team to the next year into a bigger team. And I was lucky enough the 2008, so my first year after Italy, I, I actually got to ride the Tour Down Under as part of a um, Australian national team. That's probably 
also where my name first started to, to get out there. I was in the breakaway on the first day and, you know, I guess that's when all the, the directors of the World Tour teams kind of took a little bit of a, a notice. But, you know, it was still another two years till I had, you know, Bjarne Reese uh, gave me a call and I was lucky then that I had Stuart O'Grady and Brad McGee, guys like this, um, riding for CC at the time who, you know, really went into bat for me. Talking about Bjarna, uh, I mean, that's where we first met, was down in Fuerteventura in yeah. that little training camp resort called Playitas. I think that yeah. was December of 2009, right before the 2010 season. And my first impressions of you was that you, you were very quiet and reserved. And, you know, yeah, we had Fabian Conchalera on the team, Brad McGee, the Schleck brothers, Yenzi, Matty Breschel, like all these, all these great guys. But I'll never forget, like the one real takeaway from that camp was there towards the end when we we did the underwater swimming competition and you just killed everybody. And I forget who it was. I'm going to give Stuart O'Grady credit for this because it's probably him. Nicknamed you the fish, which is kind of like stayed for, for quite a while. Do you, re- do you remember that whole scenario? Yeah, I do. I think, yeah, I remember that. I mean, to be honest, coming from a swimming background, it's not that impressive. You know, it's a, kind of something that you used to do as a kid was swim underwater as far as you could. And I think when we did it, I was like, oh, this is, this is super, you know, I think I can beat these guys. But then you had like Yenzi who did 50 meters and I think there was, I can't remember, but there was someone else, but we also had a neo pro called Yarrow, Yarrow Marich. And he almost drowned on that camp because he couldn't swim. But, uh, yeah, but long story short, I think I did that. And then I remember, uh, Fabian actually, you know, dragged me out of the pool, you know, like gave me the fist pump on the way out of the pool and, you know, and, Kind of turned heads a little bit, I suppose. And um, it, it did. And it, you know, every neo pro when they go to a camp, they need to put their hand in the air. And I remember Matty Breschel the year before he got grabbed his guitar and started just jamming on the guitar. Something as little as you know, a, an ex swimmer going, I don't know, two or three laps underwater when the rest of us were, like you said, almost drowning to go one full length of the pool. It it was great, and I loved seeing that initial. I guess, acceptance into the group, because that's that's so important for neopros to feel accepted, especially, you know, maybe things are a little bit easier now, but back then it wasn't the most simple thing. But going, you know, talking about the pool, you know, you were literally, literally thrown into the deep end of the pool on Saxo Bank. I remember you doing the, the Giro your first year and with the Giro d'Italia going on right now, this is another reason why I wanted to have you on, that we decided to put you into the Giro, kind of neo-pro, just kind of see what happens. The next thing you know, you're in the leader's jersey of the Giro. You wind up winning the the young rider classification and getting seventh overall. How, do you remember like how massive that was or was that a massive jump for you? Uh, look, it was, but probably rewind to, to Paris-Nice, to be honest, that year. You know, Bobby, it's the most miserable, torturous race that you can do. It's horrible. I don't think anybody enjoys it. And I went there and just had an absolute nightmare of a race. And and that's where Viana just said to me on the back of the bus in Nice, he said, you're too fat to be a professional bike rider. You need to do something about it and and go home and lose some weight. And and so I did it. You know, I went home and, and lived like a monk. You know, I was... It was not easy because I was living in Monaco on Neo Pro 
salary and and trying to make ends meet and um i mean you were there you were in the trenches with me on the motorbike behind you know doing tt training and stuff like this and and then i went to romandy won the time trial and then that started all sorts of rumors that you know i'd sat behind a car or they'd got my timing wrong and i'd started 30 seconds earlier and you know so which i didn't i did none of that i just had a you know a great time trial and and then yeah rocked up at the giro with absolutely no pressure on me and I took the white jersey from the, the prologue and um, then I, I remember on the, the super long stages in L'Aquila where they had the big earthquakes the year before, it was 262 kilometres long, so super long stage. And after 60 kilometres, there was a massive breakaway. I think there's like 60 guys, but, you know, there's guys like Wiggins, Sastra, you know, some absolute hitters up there. And it became pretty clear, you know, Sastra came up to me and he said, you're going to be leading the Giro d'Italia tonight. And and then I was like, oh, that's cool. But I still had 200 Ks to make it through, you know. So, yeah, it was a, a strange one, you know. Like for me, I didn't do my – I didn't go through the Australian Institute of Sport and I did it you know, pretty tough, I'd say, in the Italian amateur scene. But I, I sat there watching the Giro with all my teammates in in in, uh, in Italy for three years and, and the, the Giro is their tour. Um, so to, to pull on that pink jersey was just incredible. And it was still one of those things that I'll, I'll never forget. I had three days in, the, in the, the pink jersey and, you know, people just shouting. They don't shout your name, that you know, that they're, they're shouting the pink jersey, the Maglia Rosa, you know. that's like, When you ride past the crowds, they're just shouting that Maglia Rosa. So I had to pinch myself. It was absolutely incredible and still three of the best days I've ever had, you know, in my career, even to this day. On that, you said you went into the race with no pressure. I'm interested to hear that perspective of someone who's ended up in the in the lead of a Grand Tour, gone in with no pressure, and then fast forward throughout your career, right, you've gone in then as a leader. I'm interested to know for you how it feels different going into a race with expectations versus going in without any expectations. To be honest, I think going into a race with expectations, if you're with Team Sky where they've got the horsepower that you know if you take a jersey, they can defend and they will. You know, if someone has a bad day in that team, there's always, you know, Vasil Kirienko would step up and ride 60Ks, you know, in Paris-Nice. And, you know, you'd see lead-out trains coming up in the last few K and they still couldn't get past him. You know, it was just that strong. But then in other teams that, I, I mean, yes, you take the salary, therefore you take the pressure. But for me... I never dealt that well with having all that pressure when, you know, you, you felt like you didn't have a whole team support behind you. Like, it's just one of those things. Like, you know, I, I find it funny when, you know, sometimes you, you, you'll see an article on you and you, you have a bit of a read and then you, you go down under where the, the um, article finishes and you get all these people, you know, you know, I've, I've done nothing since I left Sky and this, that, and it's like, I still won, you know, Tour de Suisse, Tour de Romandy, races like this, which is, you know, to people from the outside who just think that the Tour is, is the one and one and only race, you know, it's to, to go to these races like Romandy or Catalonia, this, I mean, every race these days is stressful. A, a win's a win. Um, there's no easy wins in, in world tour racing, but, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Tour Down Under or Paris Nice or, the Dauphiné, they're, they're just as stressful as the tour at times. I think the thing with the tour is it's 21 days of stress, isn't it? So it's, uh, it's, it's just one of those things. 
And not to go too far ahead in chronological order here, because I'd like to give our listeners a little bit more information. So after the Giro, the next year, Alberto Contador comes to the team. Then in 2012, you moved to Team Sky, where we were able to work together again. And you just mentioned like the the, the races that you won. And Tor, I'll, I'll, I, I can't forget Tour of Algarve in 2012. Uh, you were in the yellow jersey, and all of a sudden, the head coach of, of Team Sky at the team at that time, um, well, to this day, Tim Carrison, calls me up on the phone and goes, you need to take the home trainer up to the podium because we want our riders to start warming down after every stage on the home trainer. And I love the idea because I used to do that way back in the day after every time trial, my dad would set up the little home trainer I was doing it in 97, 98 Tour de France as well. So I was all over it. But I remember walking through that crowd of people. Remember crowds of people? That was that was fun, right? <laughs> remember that? Uh, anyway, crowds of people. And I, I put down the home trainer. I put your bike on it. And you kind of looked at me like I said, yeah, we're going to do this. It's going to take 10 minutes. That's it. Do you remember how many people just laughed at us and scoffed at us? And now it's absolutely stock standard across the board. But I always tell people that story that it was you that did the first warm down in front of everybody um, and then maybe started this whole trend. Well, I, I, mean, I remember Caro saying that. It's like swimmers do warm downs, runners do warm downs. Like cyclists are the only sport that didn't do anything afterwards, but that's the funny thing with cycling is just so full of traditions. You know, you do this, you do that. But I think that's why Team Sky you kind of changed. You know, they, they did things outside the square. And, you know, a lot of other teams now are caught up. And um, I think next year Ineos will be better when I go back there. But, uh, you know, it's, a, it's just one of those things, wasn't it? And we did, we did the, the warm down and, and people thought we were crazy. One guy I'm going to drop in it here is Stuart O'Grady because I remember him you know, coming up to me, oh, why are you doing this and that? And rah, rah. and then uh, in the Dauphiné that year, we started on a, a mountain. So this is the warm-up. We were also the first team to do the warm-up as well. Rode past Stewie, and he's on the home trainer outside the, the Green Edge bus. And he kind of gave me that, yeah, I know, kind of a look. You know, <laughs> he, was, he was on the trainer because we just started up a 12-kilometer climb. And it was one of those days where, you know, everybody starts on the trainer because that's what Sky were doing. But then the first break went anyway, so there's no point in this warming up. But yeah, look, I mean, everybody changed their, their ways. Um, and, and now after stage, there's, you know, probably no GC contenders that aren't doing the cool down. And like speaking that that team in that year, right, uh, moving on to Team Sky and obviously 2012 was a big year. You were part of that Brad Wiggins sort of motorboat that, that, went on to to win Paris-Nice and Dauphiné Romandy the tour obviously how was that coming into that realm and then and then being part of part of a pretty big piece of cycling history in in recent years yeah look i think when i went from saxo which when i saw him in saxo it was the best team in the world but then to go to sky and and the way that they were doing things so differently to everybody else and you know it was just the whole thing with them was like you know the adidas kit the the Pinarello bikes and the buses, like everybody hated us, you know, from the outside. But uh, it was an incredible organization to be a part of, especially that first year when we just, you know, just dominated everything. And everybody was always saying, yeah, but they've, 
they've peaked too early, you know, especially Brad and Chris have peaked too early. But Brad won everything that year and Froomey was super in the tour that year as well. So yeah, it's one of those things. I remember I remember from the tour we made about over 800,000 euros in prize money. It was one of those years where we all, because we were such a team, split it between everybody. So, you know, the guys that were doing the tracks, the track stuff for the UK also got the same amount as me who, you know, was riding on the front up every mountain. So it was, uh, you know, you look back at it now and that's quite funny, but um, it hurt at the time. But it was just, a, it was a great team to be a part of. It really was. And and you settled into that role as a support rider for, for Bradley and then for Chris there for a couple more years. And you always managed to win some races and get some personal success. But was it that personal success in those other races that motivated you to switch to BMC the next year and race against one of your best friends, Chris Froome, going for the same objectives? Yeah, look, I think that was it. It was, you know, it was in my life that I needed to make that, you know, it was, was then or never, to be honest. And I mean, looking back on it, I mean, BMC was a super team to be a part of it, you know, with Andy Reese there as the sponsor and I don't regret that at all, but then then you just don't know. I mean, had I stayed in Sky, maybe I would have had a chance in, in the tours as well for myself with, with the team that they had, but, um, you know, no regrets because you know, BMC was awesome. Trek's been great too, and next year I'm going back there to, to finish off my career. So you know, I think it was nice to, to go and win some, some big races with Sky, but, you know, I did need to get out and, you know, I left, I left Sky with, with Dave Brailsford's, um, blessing, you know, and he said that to me. He said the door's always open for you to come back and, and, um, it, and it was. So I'm really looking forward to going back there to finish up. But, you know, your, your tenure there at BMC got off to a pretty good start. You finished fifth in the Tour de France in 2017. I have to ask you, what was it like when you guys crashed into the back of that motorbike going up Mont Ventoux? And what was it like when you passed Froomey? running up Mont Ventoux. I mean, that, that was just the craziest time that I, I think we've seen in a long time. But like you were there, like, did you kind of r- ride by him thinking, um, wh- where are you going? Hell? It's like another 2K <laughs> to the finish here. Yeah, I guess it was like, I mean, that was it, wasn't it? It was just pandemonium. Like, it was just, no one really knew what was going on. It, was, it went from one second, you're like, this is brilliant. There's, you know, Monoma, Prumi and I, we're all, you know, obviously had a great day, each of us respectively. And had we finished at the top of one two, we probably would have taken some really good time, but we were in a good position there. And then next, next thing, or as they say in Australia, next minute, the, the bloody motorbike, camera motorbike just stopped. Like, you know, it had nowhere to go because the crowds were incredible, like huge crowds and, you know, no barriers. And the further you got up the, the mountain, the more drunk people were so it was pretty hostile but um it's like what the hell just happened and then i got back up and molimer molimer was off because he you know it was like a bit of a stacks on wasn't it so he was the last man in i was first one in last one out but you know Froomey broke his bike my my wheels were buckled so i had to loosen the brakes remember those rim brakes back in the day but then when i rode past Froomey. The red car, like the ASO's organization car or maybe the commissaire, jammed the brakes on. But then I had no brakes, so I nearly smashed into the back of that too. So it nearly, nearly went down. But yeah, as I 
through me, we were just like, what the hell has just happened? Like, neither of us knew. But then, you know, we got to the finish and, and it seemed like they weren't going to do anything about the times. But then I think that, um, you know, they, they neutralized stage, but or the, the last couple of K. But yeah, I, I remember the next day that we had a time trial and, you know, someone from ASO came over and said to me, Oh, you know, we're really sorry for what happened, but it wasn't our fault. So yeah, I don't know. I guess it wasn't their fault. It wasn't our fault. It was just one of those things that happened. Classic ASO, I think, uh, in that regard. So then. After your fifth place in 2015, um, 16, or 2016, yeah, yeah, you had some bad luck. We don't want to go necessarily like into those crashes that you had necessarily, but I think like of of bad luck. Well, I guess more than that. But did you start to think Grand Tours were no longer an objective? Did you start to think what's my role here? Yeah, I guess. How did you kind of tackle that from a personal personal perspective? Yeah, I mean, hundred percent in in 2017. Um, you know. I think I'd have been on the podium for sure if I didn't have a crash. And it's easy to say that from here, isn't it? But then in 2018, I went in, you know, I'd won Tour de Suisse the, you know, a couple of weeks before and my wife had just given birth to our first child and I knew all the, you know, all the sacrifice that I'd made. And then the next thing you sat there with a, a broken collarbone. So it was just, you know, for nothing. I think that's like the first time I really ever got emotional. Like I actually cried when I sat there on the ground because, you know, I knew all the work I'd put in. I knew I had this great condition. And, and then the next thing you're in the back of an ambulance, it was just like, it's just a brutal sport. And yeah, look, after that, you know, last year, 2019, I just kept getting sick. And going into the tour this year, I thought, you know, I didn't really have a chance in hell of being there in the last week and also when we did the recon i saw how hard it was um but yeah like i I went there you know without the pressure this year and i think that was just you know so much easier and also i must say this whole covid thing you don't have the journalists there you don't have the fans there it wasn't the pressure cooker that the tour de france normally is i think anyone that's ridden the tour you know anything any little issue there is it just blows up like out of portion so this year was just a it was the nicest tour to be honest that i've been a part of 2020 has been crazy but at the beginning you started off by winning the tour down under for for the second time although you lost your your title of what was it six in a row of winning yeah, but I, Hill? I, I got the strava this year though bobby so it makes <laughs> up for it. there you go there you go exactly. so so you win the the tour down under the season's yeah. kicking off my question is, I think, on everyone's mind. If you win Walunga Hill six out of seven years, what do you do to get yourself self into such amazing condition uh, right off the bat, coming off of no racing, just training, to be able to win not only that stage that many times in a row, but winning the overall two years as well? Look, I think for me, you know, I've lived you know, almost half my life, I guess, living in Europe for the majority of it. At the end of the day, I don't get to spend any time in Australia, but when I do go back there, it's just it's just like, you know, you see that with the Colombians and a lot of the Americans, they do come home during the season, where season where Aussies, you don't. You're stuck, you know, you're, you're in Europe from end of January to start of November. So for me, when I go back to Tassie, it's, you know, it's just so easy. You know, the training there is fantastic. There's no distractions, really. I, I ride my bike. I go and swim most afternoons, you know, with, with my dad and, 
um, other other people that I used to swim with. It's just bliss. I absolutely love it. So, you know, of course, um, you turn up at Tour Down Under with you know, better form than what the Europeans do, although that's changing now too. Everybody's turning up. It's the first World Tour race of the year, so everyone's there to win. But I don't know. I think it's just a, a climb that suits me down to the ground and, you know, it's it's been a, a happy hunting ground for me and, you know, hopefully the race happens again next year and can try and do it again. You spoke a little bit about coming to the Tour this year and how, how it was a different race. I'm interested to hear how what you, th- you know, how you sort of, I guess, leveraged the lockdown, right? Did you enjoy the ability to like not have to go to races or as you said, to kind of have this period of being out of, of the spotlight to just kind of train and focus on that in a bit more of a, a freeing environment or do you prefer to be at these races and, and kind of going through that process? I, I mean, I'm, I don't need to race to be in good form, to be honest. I can do it, you know, from, well, I did it from, from Zwift and it sort of did that approach, you know, I must tip my hat to my, my coach in, in Trek, Segafredo, who's a guy called Yosu Larazabel, who said that to me, he said, just do what you want to do. So I was, you know, if I wanted to do four and a half hours on Swift, I'd, Zwift, I'd, I'd do that, you know, but I was pretty bad with my diet during it, you know, like I think that was my coping mechanism as if I had to go to the supermarket, which with a pregnant wife, of course, I had to because we couldn't take the risk with her. But, you know, the old Ben and Jerry's caught me out quite a few times and, and the chocolate, like, I mean, when I, I was on the trainer, I mean, my my nicks were cutting into my legs. They were that tight. Like I, I've got these little scars to, to prove that. But um, look, for me, it was probably what I need to do because if you go to, to Tour Down Under, absolutely, you know, at top level, um, and then you get to the Tour on fumes, which, you know, I'm not going to lie, it's happened to me a few years. So for me, the lockdown was probably the best thing that could have happened, you know. I had a, a good routine where I go out with Michael Matthews and we'd walk you know, walk around Monaco until we got fine um, because we were two two guys from different households hanging out together. So, And then I also got fined in France because I was, uh, you know, 50 metres outside of the Monaco border to get the groceries for the family. But, um, you know, other than that, the, the lockdown was really great for me. I had a good time at home with my wife and, and our son. And um, then once, uh, once we were out, you know, we had two months to, to get fit. And for me, I really knuckled down there. That's all I need is, you know, sort of two months to really get back into it. And, you know, I started from absolutely zero. I mean, I remember the first day riding up the Madone, I got dropped by amateur riders uh, on the Madone, which is my climb, you know. So that was a bit, you know, a bit of a wake up to see how much work I had to do. But, you know, Bobby would know that I, if I have to do the work, I'll do it. It, it, it all It all just went so smoothly. Okay, so we've been building up to this. Obviously, I didn't want to hit on it right away, but like now we have to talk about the 2020 Tour de France. A lot of stuff going on there. You've mentioned, you know, the lockdown, not not having the best diet, but then coming out and finally having an objective of the Tour de France, you know, that that carrot, that 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 little extra bit that gets you up in the morning and allows you to leave that Ben and Jerry's in the back of the fridge. But you also had something else to deal with even before the race started. You mentioned that your your wife was pregnant and you you had the birth of your second child during the race. You lost your co-team leader, Boca Molima, with a broken wrist. 
but then you just suddenly seem to get better and better. Like those mountain stages that were just, you know, one or two guys, all of a sudden you were right there kicking in, kicking in, coming up. And then you had that amazing time trial on the second to last day. What do you feel that that you did differently that eventually led to you being only the second Aussie ever to be on the podium of the Tour de France after Cadell Evans won in, in 2011. To me, you seem like much more of a mature rider. And I, I doubt, you know, as I doubt that a younger Richie Port would have been so calm when you flatted on that dirt section. But what did change fundamentally for you other than like you said, there wasn't so much pressure, but there had to have been those thoughts in the back of your head that, man, I've been here before and and something has happened. T- talk us through that final week when when the podium was within your grasp. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, normally, the timing of the baby was absolutely perfect because, you know, I wouldn't have had to miss it. But if you're missing the, the birth of your child and your wife says to you, go for it, but if I see you on the back of the peloton, I'm not going to be happy. I mean, that was the thing for me was once the, once our little girl was born, it was like, right, I'm here now. I'm doing this. And it's like, I'm not the most, uh, what's the word, confident guy, but, but, but it, like when, when that happened, I mean, it was such a brutally hard climb and, you know, Pogachar and, and, um, Roglic, you know, rode off, um, in front of us all and, and then it was me, like I was the next strongest guy. And that's when my, my coach Yosu and, and Kim Anderson said to me, Richie, believe it or not, but you're the third strongest rider in this race. You know, like you, you have to believe in it. And, you know, they, they never put that pressure on me. Just do your best. That was always the key words from, from Kim Anderson, my director. You know, if, if those guys, you know, the younger, more explosive guys were, attacking and, and dropping everyone then i just did my own time trial behind them you know, i don't look at my power meter and i think you know that's one thing which you know always works in my favor is just crack on with it don't you so i think uh you know when i when i had colder lows the, that was the one finished at 2300 meters i did that in recon with Falca and and we knew that that was going to be brutally hard because it was such a hard climb and also the altitude was another thing. And for me, that day actually set was, you know, probably the strongest guy. He was absolutely fantastic that day. So, you know, when I, when I finished that stage and I could hardly pedal my bike in the last few hundred meters, that was like when I kind of realized that, you know, I could potentially be on that podium, um, without, you know, if I had a great time trial. And the next day we did. We, we had that gravel section and yes, I had the puncher, but yeah, like, like you said, Bobby, I didn't throw the toys out of the pram like I might have done in, in the past, but you know, we took a, took a, a new bike and then Kim said, right now it's a time trial. Um, you versus the other guys. And then, you know, we had that nasty technical descent, um, straight off it and, and I was on my spare bike, which, you know, Thankfully, I'd ridden a fair bit through the year, my second bike in the training camps and stuff. So I was, you know, pretty good with that. And then um, I know that um, some of the other guys did take the advantage there of, of my bad luck and, and worked together to try and put me out the back. But I think Roglic and Pogachar were, were, you know, very sporting there in, in not uh, working against me because they could have really put me out of the race. So 
when I came back to those guys, it was a, a massive relief. Um, and then, you know, when, when I finished the stage and, and rode past, you know, like all the other team buses and, and, you know, people from the other team were sort of clapping me as I rode past. I was like, you know, I, I'm ready to, to punch on here. You know, like it's, it's my, my chance. Um, you know, I knew from that ride, especially when Damiano Caruso came up to me and said, Hey, you were like a motorbike there. You know, you can do a good time trial and, um, you know, and he's, he's a rival. So yeah, look. Like that was it. And then um, the the stage on the Friday, which on paper was meant to be nice, easy, you know, sprinter stage, was an absolute war because Bora were trying to get rid of um, Sam Bennett for the the green jersey. So there, I was thinking, yeah, you know, you know, let the break go, sit a bit further back, eat and drink, spin the legs, happy thoughts, as they tell you on the radio. And um, then it absolutely turned into a nightmare, stressful, horrible day. You know, so my, my grand plans of having an easy day before that time trial, you know, went up in smoke, but we got through without any crashes or any, any other rubbish. And, and then Saturday time trial. Yeah. It was, I knew, I, I knew that on a good day, I could beat Lopez, um, Superman Lopez, but, uh, you know, you just, you just never know, do you? When, um, you know, a minute and a half was a, a lot of time to close on him. And, and after 14 Ks, uh, on the radio, Kim Anderson said to me, you know, you've taken 48 seconds out of, um, out of Lopez and I knew it was game on, but you know, then it was like Lander was in front of me. Um, and I wasn't sure how, what sort of a day he was on, but when we stopped to take the, the bike change, Lander was just there. You know, my mechanic Aaron said to me, um, when he gave me the road bike, he said, Lander's 200 meters in front of you. And I, then I kind of realized that, you know, it was very, very possible. And then, Kim came on the radio three days later and said, Richie, you've got your dream. You're on the, you're on the podium in the Tour de France, which is you know, amazing. But then you still got three Ks of La Planche de Belfield, which is one of the hardest, hardest climbs in world cycling to, to finish. So once I got over the line, it was just like, you know, I went in straight into doping control and, and watched, um, Pogacar and Roglic's duel. And, you know, that's when it kind of, kind of like, you know, sunk in that I was on the podium. And I say it now, it still feels like a victory to have finished third in the tour. I mean, you know, some guys, their dreams to, to win the tour. But, you know, for me, it was always just to, to be on that final podium there in Paris. It, I mean, I think it's changed me as a person too. I think I'm much more content with everything because I know, you know, I, I've always known I had the the ability to be up there. But finally, for you know, to, to get through a three week tour without any major fiascos, it was just the most incredible feeling. Well, we've all known for a long time that you've had that ability and, you know, luck is part of the sport and was was quite cruel. But just seeing you, especially now that you mentioned the, the time trial there, just the, the demeanor on your face, because like at the beginning of your career, I mean, you were, that was your weapon. The time trial was your weapon. And you know, the last couple of years, you know, courses have changed, priorities have changed, you know, the time trialing ability hasn't shown through like it like it used to. But I just saw a two time father, a 35 year old veteran of the sport, just doing his best. And you go back and you look at those slow motion pictures of your face and there's no panic. It's just like you said, you're just going to kick on with it and you're going to get the job done. So I mean, that was one of the, the, the best stories of the Tour de France for me was at the end of your career, towards the twilight of your career, I won't say the end, to be 
on that podium in in Paris. Congratulations, man! Congratulations. Uh, thanks. Of course, yeah, and, I picked the year where you have to wear a mask on the on the podium, but we we got away with a sneaky pick. We took the mask off and had a sneaky pick after, and the ASO were were fine with that. So it's the thing for me, the time trial day. You know, I knew that I was on a good one. And, um, you know, my coach, Yosu, said that to me. Goes, you don't need to go out there and, you know, do your warm-up and, you know, do 20-second sprints. He said, just go and sit on the trainer, you know, make sure your legs are warm for the start. And it was just that low, low-key, no-stress approach to it all. And, I mean, that's what works for me. It does feel like a bit of a bookend. You've been knocking on the door for so long. And, like... I'd kind of forgotten a couple of years there where you were in Italy, where you were like, you were doing it the hard way before you, you know, as I said earlier in the interview, it felt like, you know, you sort of had that success in Australia and then next thing it was the pink jersey, but there was like two or three years in there, right? Is this kind of like a, like, it feels like it's obviously the crown on your career, but looking back over what's been like, not a straightforward road, right? And, and pretty rocky one. Are you satisfied with, with where you're at and how it's kind of turned out now? Yeah, and I think that's why I take offense to some of the crap that you see written about you, you know, about this and that. But it's like, I'm still the guy that, you know, I was the only English speaker in the team. I was living, you know, at some one stage I was sleeping under a stairwell because I didn't have a room, you know, in the team that I was with. There was a tussle between two teams. Like, it, w- it was never easy, you know. I, I remember, you know, in tears and she said, you know, just go to the airport and just get on a plane and come home. And that's, that's kind of how, how it was, like. It wasn't an easy road, but at the same time, I did turn professional with the best team in the world. So I think everything happens for a reason, to be honest. And you know, I think that's what makes it all that all that sweeter. And you know, people forget that that you know the, the Aussie guys and the Kiwis. You know, we're on the absolute other side of the world. You know, like you know, my wife's English, so now I have family in England, which is you know it, it makes it easier as well. But you know, it's it's a huge sacrifice. You know, you can't just get on a plane and and fly, you know, nine, 10 hours and get home. It's, I mean, it's a two day travel to get home. So, you know, it does make it all, all that sweeter, those sacrifices. And, you know, there's many, many guys that, you know, it, it hasn't worked out for. So I feel, you know, absolutely privileged that, you know, I'm in the position I, I am, but, you know, I don't think anyone has an easy road to professional cycling, but yeah, mine's definitely been quite rocky to be honest. And then now, Everyone kind of knows, right? You're headed back to Team Ineos, formerly Team Sky. I guess, like, how did this come about, and and what's what's the plan? How 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 do you kind of see um, the end of your career playing out? Yeah, look, I mean, it's to be honest, it's always been the dream to go back there and finish. Um, for me, it's sad that you know a lot of the the guys, um, you know, like Froomey's leaving. Um, Nico Portal, who's, was such a brilliant part of my career. He's, you know, he passed away. Um, Fran Miller's no longer there. Like there's so many people that were part of it, but it's still the team that I was the most happy. It's also the team where I met my wife and the team I worked with Bobby. It's, you know, it's been, you know, it's, I've still got so many great friends there, but, you know, I, I think I'd like to take my opportunities in some of the, the stage races, like why not tour down under and, but yeah, I know for sure going into the grand tours, I'll be working for Garrett Thomas or Egan Bernal or, or Richard Carapaz. I mean, that's, that's why I signed there, you know, is to go back and do that role. But you know, at the same time, you know, being third in the tour, it does make me realize that you know, on my day, I could still be up there. You know, or oh, sorry, I got 
lucky 21 days in a row, I guess, at the tour. So, you know, I, I think I can still figure and I think I can still do a job for, for those, those guys. Um, and that motivates me, you know, it's, um, yeah, I enjoyed my two years at Trek, Segafredo. It's a fantastic team, but yeah, you know, I always knew that that was what I wanted to do was to go back there, do two more years, finish my career and, you know, hopefully be part of a, a grand tour winning team again. Jeez, I tell you, the hardest thing for me to admit is that you're you're now 35. I mean, that means that I'm 10 <laughs> years older as well, which I, I'm not comfortable saying. But, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And I'm I'm interested to hear your opinion on how the sport has changed uh, from the Soxo Bank days, like in, in 2010, compared to now. What are what are some good things and what are some changes that, that you don't really like happening or have happened over this last decade? I think that these young kids are so good now. You know, they come in, you see, you know, 19 years old, they're, they're winning the biggest races that there are, which, you know, when, when I... Or when I turned professional, that wasn't happening, you know, but I don't think they're going to have as long a careers as us. I, I think, you know, they've come in, they've done, you know, low carb rides and, you know, the, the train properly. Whereas we, you know, came in, we had no idea about nutrition or any of that sort of side of things. And, you know, we, we still had a lot of room for improvement. I don't think this younger generation are going to have, you know, as longer careers. And, and I think that the sport is getting faster and more dangerous i mean the roads there's a lot more road furniture on and then you know we have cpa which is an absolute hoax i mean they're not doing anything to to help you know um protect us riders but look i think for me now i'm looking at it and i actually feel sorry for these young guys at the same time i think you know the the sports it's in a pretty good place i think the globalization of sports only getting bigger and bigger but yeah i think it's it's a young man's game now i think that's just how it is you know you see the hershey's guys like this they're just phenomenally talented and and they're winning straight away but whether that's sustainable or not I'm, i'm not sure so now, like speaking speaking about you know it being a young young man's game. Post career, are you going to stay in Europe? Are you going to head back to Australia? Like, do, do you have any plans on what you want to do necessarily? Do you want to stay in the sport or? No, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if we'll end up in UK or in Australia. But yeah, I don't see myself like Bernie Eisel, you know, commentating and stuff like this. It's not really my sort of thing. At the same time, I don't think I could be a director, but. You know, I think I'd like to step away from the sport. You know, I think the day I'm done, my uh, social media accounts will be <laughs> scuttled. You know, it's not it's not the reason I ride my bike, but you know, I'd like to take a couple of years out, and you know, and also, you know, now I have a son and, and a daughter. You know, it's it's one of those things like if they don't want to ride a bike, I'm absolutely happy with that. You know, it's I think you know cycling. It's it's been such a a beautiful and big part of my life but i'd also like to just go back to riding a bike to you know co- between coffee shops or you know just for the enjoyment of it you know i think i've, I've lost that over the years which is a, a real shame it's become a job but you know i, I kind of get more excited now to do you know do the everest i did the everest last year before everyone went bananas going for the speed for me the everest was more about just doing it you know and 
you know, then there's other challenges here that, you know, three times up Torini that I wanted to do, which is not going to happen this year. But I probably get more psyched for that, to be honest. I, I still enjoy the racing, but, you know, training and, and chasing numbers and things like that, you know, I think it's easier for me there's someone who's taken my Strava on a segment to go out and chase it like that than, than go and chase numbers. But, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm bitter with the sport, but, you know, I think it, for me it would be nice to, to step away from it. I think I'd always watch the tour and watch the classics and stuff. I mean, I'm still a fan of cycling, but I think I'll remove myself and, um, you know, I think that'll be the best thing for me. I, I very much doubt that you'll be one of those guys that don't touch their bike for a while because, um, like you said, riding a bike without having the pressure of, of staying 100% fit is is quite enjoyable. It took me quite a few years to figure that out, but uh, just a little hint there, Richie, it's, it's, it's nice on this other side of the barriers, put it that way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we've taken up a lot of your time. I just wanted to ask you two more things. 2021 will be your 12th season at the world tour level, I believe. Going into your 12th season, I think I know the answer to this question, but what what was the result that you are most proud of and what's that one that got away? And obviously, you know, you, you, you've had a lot of those successes and you've had your fair share of bad luck. So what, what is left to, to, to check off the list here? Other than the tours where I didn't podium or crashed or whatever, the one that really sticks out for me is not winning the Dauphiné. I've been close a couple of times, but that's the one that I, I haven't checked off. I'd love to win that race. It's such a hard bike race. And, uh, you know, to, to be second there a couple of times. I also lost second one year in the last 300 meters because I got put into the barriers and had to stop and then restart my sprint. I don't have a sprint anyway. So that's probably the one thing that I'd really love to put on my Palmares is the, is the Dauphiné. I think that's the one, the, the big one week race that I'd, I'd like to, um, to tick off, to be honest. Well, Richie, I know it's getting late there in, in Monaco. Thank you very much for putting your two kids to bed and finding a, a quiet place in your house. Um, that's not very easy nowadays, I'm sure. So just wanted to, again, congratulate you on a great Tour de France this year. Wish you all the best going back to the mothership of Ineos Grenadiers. And um, just thank you again for finally taking the time to, to come on to Fizzle with, with Gus and I. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, it's, uh, it's always nice to catch up with, with you, Bobby. Uh, I mean, thanks for, thanks for listening. And, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, I can, uh, keep it up and, and, uh, next year's going to be a great season. Thanks a lot, boys. And that's it. That's all the time that we have for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Richie Port from Trek Segrafredo for joining us. Remember, you can find all of our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can reach out to us on social media at that is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Get in touch, give us suggestions, feedback. We do appreciate it. And until next week, thank you so much for listening. 
I'm Angus Morton. And I'm Bobby Julik. Thanks to all the listeners out there. Remember to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Peace.